0: Uh, the first story in this chapter is the last of the five conflict stories in the Gospel of Mark. I think I mentioned to you yesterday that almost all Bible commentators agree that, that these are five stories that we're intended to look at as a unit. Uh, in these stories, we're witnessing the climactic break between the Jesus movement and traditional Judaism. That's what's at stake here. In each of these stories, Jesus is pressing his identity and significance upon the Jewish leadership. And in each of the stories, the pressure builds and you can see that. You can see the intensity of the disagreement with the Pharisees and the and the scribes, the power structure of Judaism beginning to intensify until finally in this story they snap. That pressure reaches a critical point and the Jewish leaders begin to make plans to destroy Jesus. They recognize that Jesus cannot be contained within Judaism as it is presently constituted. He is like the new wine that bursts apart the old wineskins. So here now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the man with the withered hand functions in this story as a sort of canary in the coal mine. His case reveals deep, unbridgeable differences between the way of Jesus and traditional Judaism. Traditional Judaism permitted healing a person in mortal danger on the Sabbath. But here's the problem. This man was not in mortal danger. His problem was relatively minor. He has a withered hand, not a gaping hole in his head. Therefore, Judaism said, come back tomorrow, right? Jesus says, come here now. And he calls him up in the middle of a service for immediate healing. So there is no doubt here, no doubt at all, that Jesus is forcing the issue. He's saying, basically, we're going to decide today whose interpretation of the law is going to go forward, yours or mine, because the two could not have been more different. The Talmud, which is sort of the record of the rabbinic dialogue and argument in Jesus' day and forward, the Talmud expressly forbids what Jesus is doing here. According to Shabbat 22, 6, people who keep the Sabbath, this is a direct quote, do not straighten the limb of a child or set a broken limb. He whose hand or foot was dislocated should not pour cold water over them, but he washes in the usual way. And if he is healed, he is healed. Close quote. Are you hearing that? Traditional Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism said that if your child broke his arm on the Sabbath day, you wouldn't even touch it until the next day, right? He's not going to die. He's going to be suffering, but he's not going to die. Your kid, of course, is welcome to wash his hands in the normal way, the normal way that you would before the Sabbath meal. And if God chose to heal your kid, then so be it. But if he didn't, so be it. Wait until tomorrow. That's what Judaism was teaching in Jesus' day. And Jesus had had enough of it. Jesus is saying, do you seriously think that God is so concerned for your particular religious observances and rituals that he will not even let you help your hurting children? Is that who you think God is? Because if that's what you think about God, then you don't know God at all. That's what Jesus says. That's his verdict on first century Pharisaic Judaism. He is angry in this story. He's the angriest you meet him in Mark's gospel. Because the Pharisees prefer an approach to religion that leaves them in charge, but that leaves people in bondage. And Jesus is done with it. This is the precise moment in Mark's gospel when Judaism cracks under pressure from Jesus, right? So think of the five conflict stories as representing the pressure that Jesus is putting on Judaism to recognize his unique authority and claims. Here in this story, we hear the crack. They can't take it. They won't have it. And they immediately begin to make plans to destroy him. That's the significance, theologically and historically, of what we are seeing in this text. Now, in Mark 7 to 35, Mark begins to show us the four groups that exist on the other side of that crack. I'll read the whole section, and then we'll point out these four different groups, which are real groups, but I think Mark intends also to be sort of representative of the different ways that people might respond to this pressure, respond to all the claims about his identity and significance that Jesus has been making up until this point. All right, so we'll read from verses 7 to 35. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons." Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother? and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother now in verses 7 to 12 we see that first group okay the great crowd mark is telling us that while the jewish authorities have rejected jesus he is still very popular with the masses But Mark is equally clear that this does not necessarily mean that the masses have come to saving faith. Their interest in Jesus is merely skin deep. These people are not interested in learning from Jesus. They have come for a healing. They view Jesus as a person of power and a wonder worker, and they have come to claim their miracle. Mark actually portrays them as an unruly mob. In verses nine to 10, he has them jostling Jesus to the point where he has to make an escape plan in case things get out of hand. There is no mention of any teaching in these verses. They didn't come to learn. They came to be healed. They came to receive something from Jesus. And Mark portrays this group as selfish, short-sighted, and dangerously thin. The second group is seen in verses 13 to 21. Here the spotlight is on the apostles. They will be with Jesus and he will send them out. They are the foundation of the new covenant community. Just like there were 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament, so now we've got 12 apostles in the New Testament. God is reconstituting the covenant community with Christ himself as cornerstone. The third group is seen in verses 22 to 30, if you're looking at your Bible there. We might label this group the determined opponents. They accuse Jesus of being demonic, not because they believe it, but because they want to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the crowd. They are concerned with protecting their position. They recognize in Jesus a threat to them as the interpreters of God's word and to them as the leaders of God's people. So they embark on a smear campaign and they accuse Jesus of doing his miraculous works through the power of the devil. Now, in this section, Jesus says something that we have to unpack. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, Christians in general, but particularly new Christians, will be very worried by that verse, and they'll wonder whether they have at some point in their lives committed the unforgivable sin. And they're not sure what that is, but they know it sounds really bad, right? And so they need to have some assurance. So let's just take a minute and unpack that. Jesus says this to a group of Jewish leaders who have willfully rejected all of the evidence that Jesus has just provided about his identity and authority, not because it wasn't compelling but because of its personal and political implications for them. These people didn't want to believe Jesus was who he said he was because that would mean that they were no longer who they wanted to be. So they willfully denied the truth. That is the unforgivable sin. And you can't commit the unforgivable sin if you are a Christian. William Lane puts it this way, commenting on these verses. William Lane's a well-known Christian scholar. He says, in this historical event, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and action. So if you're a Christian, you have done the opposite of that, right? You have embraced the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and action, so you don't need to worry about that. It, to be a Christian is to be the opposite of a person who commits the unforgivable sin. Okay. Finally, the last group that Mark shows us, we might call the household of faith. We see them in verses thirty-one to thirty-five. Jesus' biological family shows up. They they've heard people saying that Jesus is out of his mind. Right. D- That doesn't mean they believe it. We don't know what they thought about those reports. We just know they were worried about Jesus. They're worried about their family member. They they understood that the political authorities, the religious authorities, they've begun to, to mobilize against Jesus, and they just want to keep Jesus safe. But Jesus uses the occasion of their arrival to make an absolutely wonderful point. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? Is it the people at the door, or is it the people at my feet. And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is no longer about biology. It isn't about being related to famous Jewish heroes. It is about loving and learning from Jesus. Or to flip the unforgivable sin on its head, it's about embracing the saving power of God being released through Jesus' word and action. It is about putting Jesus at the center of your circle and embracing him as the savior that you need. That is what makes you part of the family of God. That's the group you want to belong to. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca.